Welcome to Turn of the Century. I'm Joe Hawthorne. Today, with Stephen Kinzer, who is an award-winning foreign correspondent who's covered more than 50 countries on five continents. He spent 20 years at the New York Times and also wrote uh, many books, but the two that we're going to be focusing on are uh, Overthrow, which is about America's century of regime change from Hawaii to Iraq, and also The True Flag, which is about Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and the birth of the American empire right around the turn of the 20th century. Thank you so much for being on the show, uh, Stephen. So let's go right into it. Normally, I ask people about uh, what they see as the turn of the 20th century. But in this case, it's pretty obvious we're focusing today on uh, 1898. And, uh, you know, we're talking about the 1898 midterms, but also the year more broadly. So we'll just start out. Can you give us a little context? Why is 1898 such an important year in American history? I would argue that actually 1898 is the year in which the United States changed more dramatically than in any year in our history. It's the opening of the era in which we're now living. Actually, when I started working on that book, The True Flag, about this period, I was caught up in what I think is a fairly mainstream uh, narrative about when did the American Empire Project begin, and that is it began after the Second World War. But actually, I don't think that's correct. I now see the American Empire as having grown in three stages. One is continental empire, clearing out the Indians and uh, seizing one-third of Mexico and establishing control over the North American continent. Then the next phase uh, was overseas empire. And that's the phase that was beginning in the period around 1898. And then finally, after World War II, you have the move to global empire. But it's in 1898 that the United States first decided that it should become the kind of power that would try to expand around the world. This was a dramatic development because we had never in modern history had a country that was itself a former colony, now setting out to take colonies. This is a country that established itself on the principle of self-determination, that all people are created equal, have equal rights to govern themselves. Uh, yet, we be decided to go out on a path where we would be subjugating and guiding and ruling people in other countries. This was a huge turning point. And let me tell you one of the most fascinating things for me about writing The True Flag was getting into the quality of the debate that went on during that year uh, and in 1899. Uh, the American people and the American political leaders were all deeply aware of the fact that they were making a historic decision that was going to shape the entire rest of the future of their country. It wasn't one of these decisions that you recognize was big when you look back on it. No, they knew at the time that they were making a historic choice. And the uh, senators and the uh, other commentators who emerged during this period were so articulate that it makes you jealous when you think of the level of political debate today. Even the bad guys were brilliant. So Every single issue 
that has been debated and we've tried to figure out whether to intervene in Vietnam or whether to intervene in Iraq or anywhere else actually was first debated back then in 1898-1899. And it was the outcome of that debate that shaped the way the United States would look at the world for all of its subsequent history. And so let's narrow down a little bit because I, I totally agree. Um, and I think we're talking very broadly about, uh, uh, like, you know, ideas of empire, ideas of, um, you know, what America is supposed to be. But specifically, um, in 1898 and the direct years surrounding that, what places, what topics are, um, are political actors debating? At the beginning of 1898, Americans seemed pretty much at peace with their role in the world. They had reached the Pacific Ocean. Uh, they were consolidating their power everywhere in between the Atlantic and Pacific. And there didn't seem to be a great drive for them to push beyond North America's shores. By the end of that year, in the space of just 55 days, we seized nations in the Pacific and the Caribbean and found ourselves the masters of millions of people about whom we knew nothing. So just to go very briefly through the events of that year, uh, it starts out with uh, an intense campaign in the sensationalist press aimed at getting Americans excited about the evils that were being perpetrated in Cuba. Why did this yellow journalism campaign emerge? Uh, it was a result of newspaper wars in New York City between the Hearst and Pulitzer papers and the desire of publishers, particularly William Randolph Hearst, to increase circulation by having a story that would continue every day and force people to buy newspapers. Hearst understood what uh, cable stations understand today, and that is that war is the best running story of all. Uh, so he set out very consciously to look for a war to get the United States involved in so that he could sell more newspapers. Um, he began to focus on the war in Cuba, which had been going on for several years. In Cuba, Local revolutionaries were rebelling against Spain, the colonial power, and the war had become quite brutal. So Hearst started publishing stories about these brutalities, many of which were invented by reporters who had never even been in Cuba. Anyway, the country got into a mode of focusing on, on Cuba and being outraged about it. This led imperialists in Washington, most notably Senator Henry Cabot Lodge and his best friend, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, then Assistant Secretary of the Navy, to push President McKinley into sending a warship to Havana Harbor. That was the USS Maine. That warship exploded in what we now know was an accident caused by internal combustion. At the time, it was played up as a Spanish attack. And this further heated spirits in the United States and demands for the United States to invade Cuba. Um, this fit the mode of a group of imperialists who had been wanting to do this for a long time. But before this, the population was not ready for it. Why did imperialists exist? Why did people want to invade Cuba or any other Caribbean uh, colonies, countries at all? This is a great question. You can ask not only about the United States, but about empires in general. <laughs> Why do empires expand? 
they have the ability to do so. It's in their nature to expand. Uh, it's particularly perhaps something in the American nature. We Americans don't like to sit back and think about things and reflect and be happy with where they are. They like to do things. They like to go out and expand and take more. Also, I think Americans developed a great sense of moral superiority. We began to think that we had the key to happiness and prosperity. We should spread it to other countries. If there were other countries where people resisted our rule and our guidance, that would be just further proof of how backwards they were because they didn't realize all the benefits we were bringing them, so we had to force it on. So uh, part of it is that messianic drive, but you can't avoid the economic factor as well. During the period of the 18, the whole last part of the 19th century, one of the themes that you see constantly coming up in newspapers, as anybody who's gone through those papers uh, will tell you, is the theme of what was then called glut. American farms and American factories had developed techniques of mass production that were so efficient that we were producing more goods than we could consume. And politician after politician, newspaper after newspaper was calling for foreign markets. We must have foreign markets. Uh, now, we couldn't sell in Europe because the European countries had tariff walls to prevent that. We couldn't sell in most other colonies because the French and the Spanish and all the other colonial powers, the British, erected those same tariff walls. So what was left for us, we have to take colonies of our own. We will then erect the tariff walls and no one else will be able to trade with them. In Cuba in 1898, about 90% of all manufactured goods from tractors to screwdrivers were imported from the United States. The United States was the dominant force in uh, Cuban agriculture, in sugar mills, in cattle. We had big investments in mining, in uh, the incipient telecommunications and, and uh, railroad industries. So a lot of American capital was invested there. And the other part of the markets argument is resources. So you not only look at other countries because you see the people there as potential purchases of your goods, but also because you see in those countries resources that you can then extract and manufacture into profitable goods. So that's a part of the motivation. Now, I teach a course at Brown called The History of American Intervention. And on the first day, I ask the students, why do countries want to expand? What's the motivation? And, and I want the students to raise their hand. And let me tell you, we fill two blackboards with a list of all the reasons why <laughs> countries do this. So it's a complex answer, which I've reduced down to a bare minimum. So in, in one of the things um, that I'm curious, you know, what you think about, um, for someone like Theodore Roosevelt, it seems like you kind of mentioned a messianic complex, or he and Cabot Lodge, Henry Cabot Lodge, the senator, seemed to have a philosophy that expanding wasn't just practical, but it was also the right thing to do, that it was like the, the manly way to rejuvenate America's spirit. Can you speak to that at all? First of all, Theodore Roosevelt in particular thought that war and fighting was the only truly manly pursuit. Uh, the more you went to war, the more you fought, the more aggressive you were, the more manly you were, the more honorable you were, the more deserving of full life you had proven yourself to be. 
uh, it, you can see this through his letters. At one point, he writes something like, uh, I would welcome any war because I think this country needs one. Uh, he saw war as a unifying force and a force that would bring out the best in men. Uh, at one point, he was musing about whether there would be some way to get Germany to attack and burn some cities on the eastern seaboard. That would make Americans realize they needed to build up their defenses. So he was constantly pushing for military confrontations. And I think you can argue maybe it had something to do with his background. He was very ashamed personally that his father had paid someone to fight in his place during the Civil War and was eager to go fight in Cuba himself to erase the stain on his honor. He was very happy to send his son and his nephew off to World War I. And he even said that he hoped they'd come back missing an arm or a leg between them. Uh, so that was one piece of it. But in addition to that, I think the uh, important piece to understand the ideology of people like Roosevelt and Lodge is what we today call racism. So they believed that there was something like a pyramid of races in which certain races are born to rule and others are primitive. Theodore Roosevelt wrote that the most righteous of all wars is the war against savages. He was always writing about how distinguishing the Maoris or the Tatars or the Africans would be a great thing to do. It, at one time, he writes about Native peoples that uh, their life is only slightly more meaningful than that of the animals that they live among. So they believe that the cries from people like Cubans and Filipinos that they should be allowed to govern themselves were laughable. They felt that people like that would never be able to govern themselves in a hundred generations, and that it was the duty of the white race to come and raise these people up. If there was resistance to this, that just showed how backward those people were. So with this kind of circular argument, you can really justify uh, going in and uh, taking over countries everywhere and still convince yourself that you're not only doing something good for yourself, but for them. And, you know, this is something particular about Americans. I noticed that when you start reading about the, uh, what the words were of the Belgian colonialists and the Spanish colonialists and the German colonialists and the British colonialists, they didn't need to tell themselves this fairy tale that we're all just really doing it so much for the people of the islands of the Moluccas. No, they said we're there to get the spices. Come on, let's be honest. But Americans don't like that. For some reason, we like to have a patina around our imperial adventures and tell ourselves that we're actually not only uh, not doing it for our own benefit, but we actually suffer and sacrifice ourselves for the benefit of the people who don't even realize that our taking over their countries is for their benefit. So then let's, <laughs> let's go even further in on that, um, because 1898, like you mentioned, is this uh, critical year. As I rudely interrupted you before, you were talking about Theodore Roosevelt's uh, basically enlisting, volunteering to fight in Cuba to, quote unquote, liberate or invade Cuba, depending on how you want to look at it. And then he will eventually run for governor in the 1898 midterms. So you want to crunch those events a little bit and you know talk about how the 1898 midterms became a kind of referendum 
or debate about the place of America? Teddy Roosevelt was Assistant Secretary of the Navy at the beginning of 1898, a job that he had gotten through the intercession of Henry Cabot Lodge, his best friend, who had gone directly to President McKinley after he had helped McKinley get elected and asked him for this one favor. So uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, as the Spanish-American War exploded, that's the war, that's what we call that war in Cuba, decided that he wanted to go and fight there himself, despite being a blue-blood kid from Long Island who had never put on a uniform except in a Halloween costume. Um, so in those days, only governors had militias. There was no U.S. Army in that sense, foreign expeditionary sense. No governor would take him because he didn't have any military background. Finally, through a connection, he got the provincial governor of Arizona to allow him to put together a group of his friends. The reporters came up with different names for him, like the, the Fifth Avenue Boys. But that didn't fit. Finally, one came up with Rough Riders. So Teddy Roosevelt went to Cuba and through a series of events, including his wonderful personality that gave him uh, such uh, visibility among the press corps that covered those uh, the, the war in Cuba so eagerly, Roosevelt emerged as this big hero. Basically, he, he fought twice. Once, he led his company into an ambush, which he later said was a clever maneuver designed to draw out the enemy. And the other time, he rode up a hill and shot, uh, shot his gun a few times. At the very end of the day, he hadn't killed anybody. So he really wanted to do that. And he did find one Spaniard who was running away from it. He got to kill him. So that kind of... Uh, cleaned the family slate and made him, felt, made him feel that he had done what he, what he really wanted to do. He came home from Cuba and was quite a hero and uh, maneuvered himself into the position of uh, becoming the candidate for governor of New York uh, in that election based on the heroic exploits that the New York press had essentially invented for him in, uh, in Cuba. But there's something else very important going on while all this is happening. And that's on the other side of the world. So as the United States decided to declare war on Spain, because Spain was the colonial power in Cuba, uh, our naval strategists came up with the obvious idea that this would mean Spain might counterattack against the United States. Like maybe they could send ships against California. We had to prevent that. So we have to find the Spanish fleet. Where is it? It's not in Spain, as it turns out. And we finally looked around and we figured out it's in a place that no American had ever heard of. It's in the Philippine Islands. And so uh, the U.S. Navy Department dispatched a, uh, an admiral, uh, Admiral Dewey, to go to Manila. And uh, in a short battle that just took a couple of hours, Dewey demolished and sank the decrepit old Spanish fleet. Now, the whole reason we had gone to war with Cuba had to do, gone to war with Spain, had to do with Cuba. The only reason that we happened to send a flotilla to the Philippines was that the Spanish fleet, which we wanted to destroy, happened to be there. If that fleet had been in Spain, we never would have heard of the Philippines. So, Admiral Dewey sits there in the afternoon. All the Spanish ships are sunk. Now what does he do? And later on, President McKinley wrote very poignantly, 
If only old Dewey had just sailed away after sinking those ships, what a lot of trouble he would have saved us. But the obvious question then emerged. It looks like Spanish power is finished in the Philippines. There's an independence movement in the Philippines. Yet we're Americans. We're here. What do we do? Uh, what is this country? Should we take an island? Should we take all 7,000 islands? Should we take the port? Uh, what? Do we give it to the Filipinos and say, congratulations, you just did what we did uh, in 1770s and overthrew a foreign a ruler? Now you can be independent? What do we do? And by the end of 1898, that question was consuming the United States, and it became the subject for an epochal debate in Congress at the beginning of 1898. And so let's um, end this episode by jumping into the, I guess, the first part of that debate. You know, how does that debate kick off both in the midterms, which I was surprised with how much foreign policy was in a race for governor of New York. Um, but how does that debate start? When the war against Spain and Cuba began with American intervention in 1898, and I emphasize again, that war had, had been underway for several years, Americans flocked to support it. The idea that the United States should send troops to Cuba to help Cuban revolutionaries overthrow Spanish rule was immensely almost universally popular in the United States. We hated the idea of Spanish colonialism for a variety of reasons, and we thought this was the most righteous of all wars. Even the people who later emerged as the most vituperative anti-imperialists supported that war at the beginning. It was universal. What could be wrong with it? The only fly in the proverbial ointment was that some Cuban leaders, some leaders of the Cuban revolutionary movement, were a little bit suspicious of the United States. They were thinking, wait a minute, if the U.S. sends a lot of soldiers down here, maybe that's not good for us. After all, we're on the brink of winning on our own. Maybe we should just continue this way. So the members of Congress who were shocked, shocked that uh, there would be any doubt of their intentions, passed a law called the Teller Amendment. And this law, I repeat, passed by both houses of Congress and signed into law as part of the larger bill by the President of the United States, stipulated that the United States would remove all of its troops from Cuba as soon as Spanish rule was overthrown. And it said that the United States had no interest in Cuba other than helping Cuban revolutionaries expel the Spanish. So, once that Teller Amendment was passed with such an explicit promise that the United States would withdraw from Cuba as soon as the victory against Spain was won, the Cuban revolutionaries dropped their objection. Uh, so then that period came to an end during August of 19, 1898. And then a couple of things started to happen at the end of that year. First of all, uh, Americans in Cuba, the American military commanders, did not allow Cuban revolutionaries to march through Havana in victory. They only allowed American soldiers to march through in victory, as if it was Americans who had won the war. This was the first sign to Cubans 
that Americans weren't going to keep the promise they made in the Teller Amendment. And this set off anti-imperialists in the United States. They looked at that law and said, wait a minute, we promised with the force of law that we would leave and leave Cuba to the Cubans. Now we cannot change our minds and say uh, that law doesn't count and still go to church next Sunday and thank God that we are not like other men. At the same time, something new was happening in the Philippines. It turned out that the United States, having the chance to guarantee independence for Filipino revolutionaries, just as we had wanted in the United States, decided it wasn't going to do that. Suddenly came the idea the United States should seize the entire Philippine Islands chain and turn it into a possession of the United States. This is why towards the end of 1898, you have an explosion of anti-imperialist anger, a war that was begun to liberate the people of Cuba from Spanish rule was transformed during the summer of 1898 into a war that aimed not only to make the United States the effective ruler of Cuba, but also to bring territories in the distant Pacific within the United States uh, rule, within, under United States rule. This was not what the war started out to be, and that's what produced this great conflict that uh, became a great focus of uh, national attention during the second half of 1898 and well into 1899. And so to wrap up the um, the final events of, of that year, and I guess a little bit of the next year, what happens in the midterms of 1898 and what happens in Congress at the very beginning of 1899? So the uh, race for governor of New York in 1898 was, was really kind of a strange one because Theodore Roosevelt, the Republican candidate, had no interest in any issue that had to do with New York. It, it might be the only time in American history that a person has run for a governor of any state with only a foreign policy platform. All he wanted to do was take over countries and expand American influence and never take the flag down. All of Theodore Roosevelt's campaign rallies and he would do like 20 or 30 in a day, were very short. They would be a couple of the soldiers who had been with him in Cuba would trot out onto the stage with their uniforms on and a little trumpet or a bugle, and they'd play a couple of notes, and then they'd introduce the man who led us up that great hill on that great day. And Roosevelt would come out. He would speak for no more than five minutes. All of his speeches would be about the glories of America. And then he would wave the flag, and then he would get out of his train and go to the next stop. So that's all he talked about. And uh, the mood of the country was such, and Roosevelt was such a good match for that mood, uh, that he was elected governor of New York in 1898. Uh, it was clear that uh, he had larger interests, and he didn't even bother to hide that during the campaign. Now, at the end of 1898, the representatives of Spain and the United States signed what became known as the Treaty of Paris, one of several to bear that name. Under the Treaty of Paris, uh, signed in 1898, the United States 
uh, took control of Cuba. Uh, and it uh, became the owner of Puerto Rico. It became the owner of the Philippines and Guam. In exchange, Spain received $20 million. Uh, and the United States, with that signature, became a colonial power. But under American law, that treaty, like all treaties, had to be ratified in the U.S. Senate. That set off what I think you could say might be the most important debate in the history of the United States. It's even more important than the debate over slavery because the debate over slavery only affected events that would happen inside the United States. This debate was not just going to shape the United States. It was going to shape the entire world because the central question was, is the United States going to enter into the role of being a colonial power like Spain and France and Britain and other European powers? Is there going to be a new major force in the world that's going to be seeking to shape events in distant places? There were such deep divisions over this question. And uh, reading the debate that stretched over more than uh, a month uh, is a wonderful lesson in the great issues that America faced. And whether it's a good idea for a country founded on the idea of freedom and self-determination to try to exercise its power all over the world. All the themes as I mentioned earlier, that we now debate were contained in that uh, original controversy. And the focus of that controversy was, will we ratify the Treaty of Paris or not? Ultimately, by a very narrow margin and after... And I'm going to interrupt you right there. I'm going to cut you off before you give us the results. <laughs> so this is, will be the end of recording or episode one if you are interested in hearing more and hearing what happens in Congress in the most important debate in U.S. history, then you'll have to listen to the second episode. Uh, but thank you so much for, for talking, Stephen. We will be right back. 